So here we are, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. It's a, uh, really the fourth week of our study. Um, and since the beginning, Solomon has been proving the thesis statement that he made in the opening verses of chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. There's nothing to gain from the work that we do in this life under the sun to seek profit from this world that is cursed as a result of our sin is like chasing the wind. He has used those phrases repeatedly. He has pressed that point repeatedly. He has proven it to us by showing us the few cycles of, of, of nature, the constant cyclical cycles that just consistently happening, and yet here we come and here we go, and nothing changes, nothing's new, nothing's remembered. He's shown it to us in telling us his own life story. He was the king of Israel. He had more money than any other person in his time. He was given wisdom from God on high, and he had more, he was, he had more wisdom and knowledge. He was the smartest and most wise man that had ever lived in his day, and he was the richest man of his day. And yet there was nothing that this could do. The wisdom, the pleasure, the wealth, and the work that he gave himself to left him wanting. It was all vanity. It was all futility. Because in the end, he saw it wouldn't defeat death. And then he turned and he showed it to us, the cycle of time. And there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up. And there's, for every pleasant circumstance, there is some difficult circumstance. For every pleasant circumstance that we enjoy, there is some unpleasant circumstance that we must endure. What Solomon has achieved in this study to this point is, is he has looked from a very humanistic perspective at this life under the sun is not some pessimistic perspective. It's not just a guy with a bad attitude. It's not just a guy that's depressed. This is an honest assessment of life lived under God's curse. Life lived without God altogether. And every week I found myself saying, man, that's pretty heavy. I mean, it feels heavy, doesn't it? Am I, am I alone in thinking that this feels heavy? It may feel heavy, it may feel pessimistic, but if not for God's grace in Jesus Christ, this is the only truth we'd have. I don't think we like to look at this. I think it feels heavy because it's too real for us. I think we just assume dress everything up with butterflies and rainbows. The sad reality is that for, for a lot of people, this is the only truth they'll ever know. But it doesn't have to be. It does not have to be. Now, I think by now you'll notice there's a pattern. In every one of these sermons that I've presented, there's a pattern. And and I would assume this pattern is going to continue because, well, I, I just assume it will. But here we are, three sermons in, and we're about to start our fourth, really. And there's a pattern that's developed that after we see what Solomon has said, what truth he has shown us about his perspective of life, his viewing of life 
under the sun, feeling the weight of it, understanding the reality of it, sitting in the truth of it, that every week we have turned and looked and seen how Jesus answers the weight and removes it from us. In a world where nothing's new, he did something to make all things new. In a world in which we can find no profit, he did a work that would make us very profitable. See, in Christ, we're finally able to find reason to rejoice in the midst of very unpleasant circumstances. We're people who want things to go our way. Who thinks God's good when we get what we want? We need to be reminded that God in Christ is always good. And, and, and we're here dealing with this reality this morning. Because Solomon's about to turn his attention away from all those external things. And point them right at us. You see, he's about to quit telling life stories and talking about the things we can't control that are beyond us, like times and seasons. And he's going to quit talking about the cycle of nature and he's going to point at our sin. And so you need to remember that as we begin, we are going to take an honest look at our sin so that we can finally sit down and be grateful and celebrate the great good that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. You see, we don't like to look at this stuff. I get it. I understand it. <laughs> it's not easy to remember who we were. It's not easy to be confronted with who we might be outside of Christ. But brothers and sisters, this is the very reason we celebrate. Not because of who we are, but because of who He is. Because of what He has done. That's the beginning of our gratitude. So we're going to take an honest look today. <clears throat> and I already feel the emotion. <laughs> But I pray that this presses deeper in our hearts than just a surface-level emotion. I have prayed and will continue to pray, even as we walk through this, that this doesn't heap guilt or condemnation or crush, but in it you find the grace of God in Jesus Christ that will satisfy you forever and ever. So let's read. Ecclesiastes 3, beginning in verse 16. 
Moreover, I saw under the sun, remember this is a, a direct extension out of what he's just told us about the times and seasons, about how God is using everything to make us beautiful, about how God is sovereignly working over all things. And he comes to this place and he says, moreover, in addition to, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? If this is all we got to look forward to, you might as well just content yourself to enjoy what you have to do while you're here. Sounds pretty hopeless. Again, pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, they had no one to comfort them. On the other side, their oppressors, there was power And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Is that not a stark statement? Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. In this passage, we see that the wickedness of man has met God's righteousness. And that at the right time, his justice is going to make all things Right. Solomon has quit toying around with those external circumstances. He's quit pointing at life stories and life experiences. He's quit pointing at natural cycles. He's not talking about times and seasons. He's taking a hard look at why things are what they are. And he points it out directly. Our sin. He highlights it. In fact, we're going to deal with all three of these things. The the wickedness of man, our sin, meeting God's righteousness, and then seeing how God makes all things right in time. We're going to see all three of those, but he starts with our sin. He shows us the wickedness of man. Clearly, it's what this passage is about. And I think we tend to have categories of sin. We like to think of them as... Some sins are worse than others. And so when we hear the word wicked, we're like, whoa, man, that's serious stuff. 
Like we categorize things, right? We, we, we have little white lies and then we have your regular everyday lies and then there's those big whopper lies that you're really being super deceptive. And the reality is a little white lie is, is to us, no, I can tell a little white lie and get away. That's not a big deal. But truly the word that Solomon is using as he speaks about this wickedness and about being this, this, this wicked people, he's not speaking of a word that, that's on some, some high standard. He's not speaking about the demonic and evil and, and those things that we think of and classify, you know, like well, Hitler and Saddam Hussein, Hussein. Those are those people that we put up on, the, oh, they're wicked. Now the word he uses is a, is, is a very simple word that speaks to an offense against God's commands, against God's standards. His comments here are not reserved for the radically sinful people. Even the little white lie falls in this category. And we see it in three ways. He highlights three issues that that speak to the heart and demonstrate the reality of our wickedness. First, he points to injustice. I saw that under the sun, even in the place of justice, there was wickedness. He looks at the brokenness of a system. He looks at the, the reality that there is no availability for people to find justice. We all long for it, don't we? I mean, isn't that something that's core to us? Isn't that something that people scream and cry out for, that we all want justice? We want to be treated fairly. And yet he says the place that you would go, and he's probably speaking in this, in, in this context, he's probably pointing at the courts, those places where people go to seek justice. To hear their cases, to have their cases heard, and to, to have an equitable and fair decision made. He's saying, even in that place, it's wickedness. It's a broken system because the people who make it up are, are wicked, they're sinful. So there's no outlet for justice. But it's not just the courts that are a problem, even in the place of righteousness. And he uses two different words here, so we know he's talking about two different things. Probably the context is the temple. Even in the place of the temple. In the place that righteous shouldn't, righteousness should be. Among the people of God. Is wickedness. Not only can we not find justice. The place that we should see righteousness and justice being clearly exemplified. Is not showing it to us. So we're surrounded by injustice, he says. Now, he didn't give us any specifics. He doesn't call anything out specifically to show us exactly circumstances that that he's talking about. But I don't think we have to try hard to think of modern day occurrences. I'm going to suggest that everyone in this room at some point in their life has 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 felt like Someone has victimized them in some way. Someone has sinned against them, taken advantage of them, and they have felt no recourse. The only people that that may not be true of are those that are less than about 10 or 11, and they just haven't lived long enough for it to happen yet. Or lived long enough. Well, no, they felt it too, because why else do they run around saying, that's not fair? That's not fair. And parents answers, life's not fair. This is why that saying exists. Because in the place of justice, there's wickedness. In the place of righteousness, there's wickedness, he says. 
I'd love to say that it's all out there. Oh, it's the courts, you know, it's our broken system, it's, it's our government. But he pushes past the governmental rule and he, and he points at the people of God. I still wish that we could say that, oh, it's the Jews, it's the Muslims, it's the Mormons, it's the Catholics, right? It's, they're, they're the ones with the, this is the religious people that aren't really spiritually alive. It's, it's a religious people's problem. It's a pharisaical problem. It's a, it's a problem with people who pretend to be something that they obviously aren't. Christians are different. And we are. We'll get to that in just a little bit. But are we not just as likely to find sexual immorality in the church as we are outside of it? Are there not as many arguments and divisions in this, even this room, among brothers and sisters in Christ? Division? because of our own sinful expectations, our own sinful perspectives, our own sinful desires. A lack of willingness to love and serve and die to self. Are we not just as likely to find gossip coming from the mouths of the people in this room? Wives speaking poorly of husbands. Husbands speaking poorly of wives. Lack of forgiveness, lack of love for one another. Are we not likely to find that in this room as we are outside of it? Are we not just as likely to be laughing and talking about things and finding things entertaining that dishonor God As the people outside of this room. I didn't do this for this purpose. I wasn't trying to be holy when I did it. Just trying to be practical. Like we didn't have money to spend on a television for the church. And we'd spent so much other money trying to do the basement that we donated a television to the, to the house over there. So that now we don't have a television in our living room. And I just tell you that's so freeing. I'm not demonizing television. Don't hear me demonizing them. We still have some shows we watch. But in the middle of all this, I am finding that I feel so much freer not laughing and being entertained by things that dishonor my father. Sitting around joking and finding commitment of time going to things that Jesus had to die for. Are we not as likely to be found doing those things as the people outside this room? Wish it weren't true. Paul says it shouldn't be true, it shouldn't even be a hint, he says. But are we examples of the righteousness and justice of God?
And then he moves to oppression. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says again, I saw all the oppressions. All the oppressions. He doesn't single it down to one. I mean, this isn't just a racial issue. It's not just a gender inequality issue. It's people with some sort of leverage, some sort of position, using that position to, to sin against someone else. He's like, the, the people are crying. They're crying out. There's no comfort for them. And, and, and it's just this horrific scene. He shows us our suffering, but he doesn't say it's just suffering in general. It's suffering at one another's hands. We treat one another so poorly. This is some of the injustice that he finds in the place where there should be justice. Some of the injustice he finds in the place that there should be righteousness. And again, I don't think we even need to think very hard about modern day examples. Spiritual abuse and leaders who fail morally and then seek to use their position for their notoriety for their own gain. And they do it on the backs of the people they're called to serve. That happens in our government. Happens in our courts. And it even happens in the places that we call church. That's why we have to be so careful about raising a man up as an elder. That's why we have to be so careful that we are slow to lay hands on anyone and establish them as a leader. Because what was true then is still true today. And then, points out envy. This third expression of our wickedness that becomes evident in both places of justice and righteousness, he says, is envy. The very motive for which we work, he says in Ecclesiastes 4, 4, I saw all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Just consider that. We're so jealous of what other people have, we work hard to get what they have because we don't want to miss out on what they have. And when something good happens for someone, we're not quick to celebrate with them, at least not fully. I mean, we might celebrate, but then we're like, well, why didn't I get some of that? See, the problem is that Solomon shows us really what's the heart of these issues the reason there's so much injustice, the reason that there's so much oppression is that we are solely about self. We work hard not to honor God, but to satisfy self. We work hard not to serve others, but to satisfy self. 
this be most rarely apparent if you'll just sit down and think about how it is you spend the money you earn at work. Not suggesting you shouldn't be able to enjoy some of the good things that God provides through that. Please don't hear that. We're so concerned about getting ours that we've forgotten about the glory of God and the good of his people. We cover it up with words like ambition. We even portray that as a noble thing, right? I mean, it's a good thing to be ambitious in our world. I mean, it's a ambition, it, it kind of, you know, that's what drives our economy and our in industry and our innovation. What if we didn't have these ambitious people out there seeking to do the things that they do? But let's ask the question in the way that I think Solomon would intend us to ask the question based on this statement. Where would we be in this world if we didn't have a bunch of people trying to make a name for themselves? Because most of us aren't dying to self to serve others. The places where you're supposed to find justice and the places that you're supposed to find righteousness prove that. Because that's where you find wickedness. We're covered up with words like competitive. Oh, I just, I'm just competitive. Again, competition, driving that innovation, huh? Industry, it, it, even our economy, right? Like we're trying to, trying to just improve ourselves, trying to grow and the heart of competition is, I just don't want to be a loser. I want to be better than the other person. And Solomon goes on to give us this proverbial statement as a result of this, of this, of this, of this perspective, this sinful nature that just is pervasive in our world. And drives us this envious desire that drives us to do the things that we do. And he says, the fool folds his hands up and eats his flesh. I'm like, oh, what does that even mean? Better to be, have, have one hand full of quiet than two hands full of work and toil because that's just chasing after the wind. What does that mean? Well, I think the closest we can understand in this proverbial statement is that there's the fool that says, well, you know what, this is just the way it is, so I'm going to sit down and just, sh just, just not do anything. I'm going to fold up my hands, which means I can't do anything. I can't work. It's a picture of a person who does no work because you can't accomplish anything with your hands folded up. It's a picture of self-destruction. It's a picture of just, I'm, I'm just feeding on myself, just tearing myself up because I've just decided there's just nothing to do. It's better to, be, uh, to have one hand full of quiet then two hands full of toil. This envious heart that pursues everything, scratches and claws, trying to grab, grab everything. All I can have, all I can have, all I can have. In contrast to the person who sits down in quiet contentment and receives whatever the Lord has.
But when you look at the places where you're supposed to find that kind of justice, he sees wickedness. When you look at the places where you're supposed to see that kind of righteousness, he sees wickedness. And that cannot coexist with the righteousness of God. It clashes clearly with God's righteousness, which Solomon shows all the way through this passage. We just start back up at the top. Chapter 3, verse 17. He shows us God, and actually this is implied in verses 17 through 19. Again, God is just shown to us as this sovereign ruler. He is the one who sits sovereignly over all things. Anything that is in contrast or conflict with Him will meet His sovereign rule. He's raised up over everything. He is the one who determines the right time for judgment. In, in the same way He's determining the times and seasons of everything that we saw in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. He is the one who determines the right time for judgment to come. A lot of people look at the Bible and they say, all this evil in the world, all this wickedness in the world, this, totally discounting their own usually. So it, doesn't, it proves that God doesn't exist. It proves that the God of the Bible is a farce. Look at all the wickedness around us. Look at all the sin and the evil. Look at all the suffering. And because of it, they doubt a sovereign God, a loving God, an all-powerful or all-knowing God. But Solomon, from his vantage point of wisdom, from being the wisest man that has ever lived, the most knowledgeable, having been given this gift from God, he looks from his vantage point from wisdom and says that's not a reason to discount him. It's a reason to prepare to face his sovereign rule. Because there is a time coming, and this is the second perspective, that he will rightly judge. He will make a judgment. And his judgment will be right. He reminds us, this is, we, we, we can't find justice here. There's no fair and equitable treatment here. There's no fair and equitable treatment in our human systems. But God will judge justly. He is set forward in this passage as the, as the final arbiter. He is the set, he's the one that sets the standard, if you will. So he has the final authority of whether the standard has been met. But more than that, he, he, he doesn't just set a standard. He is the standard. You see, we miss this. We, we forget this. We disconnect it in our perspectives about how things should go and how things should look. And we minimize the, own, uh, the, the reality of sinfulness in our own heart and life when we forget that we are created in His image, that we are all image bearers of God. And so we don't treat one another as image bearers. And that's why we gossip. That's why we tear one another down. That's why we oppress each other. That's why we can't find justice and fairness. That's why we're quick to, to divide over silly issues or, or, or to, to uh, divide because of, of hurt feelings and not seek to forgive as we've been forgiven or walk in repentance when, when we have wronged someone. We're His image bearers. Every, every last one of us. There's not a person that has ever been born and walked the face of the earth and lived in, in any amount of time. There is no infant conceived in the womb that does not bear the image of God. He is the standard. He doesn't just give us a list of rules to live by that set the standard. He himself is the standard. So, if we are not holy like he is holy, 
If we are not righteous like he is righteous, if we are not loving like he is loving, if we are not gracious and merciful like he is gracious and merciful, then we have obviously fallen into the category of wickedness. We have offended him and his nature. As his image bearers, there should be a clear likeness. And the reason I bring that up to illustrate that perspective, the reason I push that point is not so much that he forces it here or that he uses it here, but, but then he, 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 he gives us this test that God is doing that I think is th- that that's the foundation of it. It, it, the, the test that he says is, is that in verses 18 and through 20, he says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man. And remember, he's speaking very specifically about a very specific people, the children of man, the line of Adam, right? That's who he's talking about. The children of man, God is testing them. He's the sovereign one. He's the one applying the test. And, and it's not a test like, do you pass or fail? He is proving a point. He's testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. Now, if we read this wrong, if we we pull this out of context and all of a sudden decide that that Solomon is giving us some eternal perspective, then then we're going to misinterpret this, we're going to misunderstand this, and we're going to hear these words and we're going to think, oh man, Solomon has lost it. Because we're obviously different than the beasts. We're obviously different than animals. God has created us in places just a little lower than the angels, right? We're not the same as them. We're not the same as, 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 as animals. But there are some similarities we share. In the same way that the animals die, we die. The minute we quit breathing is the minute we quit living here. When an animal quits breathing, we recognize they're dead. And when we quit breathing, we recognize we're dead. I, I don't know why this came to mind. Hopefully I'll alleviate this, lighten things a little bit. But we used to say that in aviation we had these boxes. All airplanes are run by all kinds of electronics. And so we always talked about the smoke that was inside this magic smoke that made all the electronics work. And if the magic smoke came out of the box, then that box was dead. Well, if you let the magic smoke out, it won't work anymore. If you, let, you quit breathing, it's the idea, right? When you run out of breath, when you can't take another breath, you're dead. The same thing. From the dust we came to the dust we return, he says. Who knows, he says, who knows where the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Now, we know that the New Testament teaches us what happens after death. We know that the New Testament teaches, but Solomon is not looking from a biblical perspective. Solomon is seeking to look at everything from the wisdom, from the perspective that God has given him. He is looking at life under the sun. He is not trying to make a statement on on this eternal doctrine of life after death or that all people will rise and be judged He is simply saying, we can't see it. I mean, we've all been at funerals where people are saying, oh, he's in a better place. Do you know that? Are you convinced of that? Do you have certainty? Do you have proof? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that he or she is in a better place? 
Well, based on what Jesus teaches about it, you know, I, yeah. Did you see their spirit rise? Solomon's just calling out a, a, a real truth. It's all centers around the fact that God is sovereignly doing what He is doing, and He is proving to us that we are not the Creator. We are creatures. We are not better than animals in this regard. We all, in large, big topics, not specifics, but in the big uh, order of things, God is Creator, and we are creatures. He's not getting into the specifics that inside the created order, inside the creation, there are men and women who are put in that place to rule and subdue. He is simply saying, we are not the creator, he is. We are not the creator, we are the creature. And we have to see this. We have to understand this. In a book that we use in our Christian Essentials course, the very first book in the, in the first session is a book called Who Am I? It's by a guy named Jerry Bridges. I would encourage at some point all of you to read it, but definitely if, if you take the Christian Essentials, make sure at some point you take that first one so that you get a chance to read this book through with other people. But he writes this. When we begin to answer the question, who am I, we need to start with the most basic truth about us. We are created beings. So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. While being made in God's image puts us on an entirely different plane from any of the animals, we are still creatures. Every last one of us is still a created being. This makes us both dependent upon God and accountable to God. The reason that God sits in sovereignty over us, the reason because that God is the, the standard himself is because he's the one that created that makes us dependent upon Him and accountable to Him. And we've tried to live as if we aren't His creatures. The course of human history has been lived as if we aren't His creatures. We've sought to live without Him. This has started in the garden. He created them in His image. He created them in His likeness. And the very temptation that Eve and Adam are faced with as Satan comes to them and points at that fruit and he says, He doesn't want you to eat it because you'll be like Him. And the thing that she desires in her heart is to be like God. To be what He's already created her to be. And so in reaching out for that, she envies what God is keeping from her. You see how this is coming together. She envies how, how why would God keep that from me? And she looks at the fruit and she sees it's good for food. It's desirable to eat. She's going to make me like God. I, I, I need that. So she eats the fruit. Oh, it would be great if we could say it was only women, right? Like that, then we'd have a case to say, well, hey, it's all your fault. But Adam, who's there, knew what, they weren't supposed to eat the fruit. She turns around and says, hey, you want something? Oh, yeah, let me have some of that because I want to be like God too. That was the very first act in which they envied something that wasn't theirs to, to have. And they acted like they were a creator rather than a creature. And we've been doing it ever since. We actually look at the world around us and act as if we know better how to run it and how to live in it than God. And what comes out of all of that is oppression 
and injustice. The very next act is an act of murder. It just gets worse from there. This Old Testament is full of stories of rape and warring and horrific acts against one another. Solomon is showing us God is the creator. We cannot replace him. God is showing us that we are creatures that are subject to him. We are accountable to him. We cannot displace him. But at the heart of our wickedness is this reality. And God sovereignly sits in this place and he will bring judgment at the right time to show us that we, that, that he alone is creator. And the beauty of it is, the, the, the promise of it is, let me say it this way, the promise of it is, is that in his time, when time is right, he will make everything right. He is just. He is righteous. Everything he does is right. There is no sin. There is no wrong. There is no evil in him. In his time, when it is right, he will make things right. He will make everything measured across according to his standard. He will either raise it up or put it down. And he does that both in death, first in death. This is the reality of what Solomon is seeing. He's looking at a world that every, it always ends in death. Death, 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 death. And we're hearing it every time we turn around, it ends in death. God will bring His righteous judgment and it will end in death. This was the promise that He made in the garden. If you eat of the fruit, you will die. And they died immediately in a spiritual sense because they would be separated from Him. But in time, they would die. And who's to say, from their perspective, what was going to happen? God will make all things right. The reality of that is that if we walk in this life not living up to His image, not, not living up to His standard, not not being found to be like Him. Not submitting to Him as Creator because we're His creatures. Not being content with what He gives us, but scraping and striving in envy to get whatever we can to fill our hands with whatever this world would offer to satisfy ourselves. Then we can clearly see that he makes it right in our death. And I know there's not a person in this room that likes to admit it. Oh, well, maybe you do. I don't know. I, maybe some of you are more masochistic than I am in these kind of things, but I don't like to admit that. I don't like to admit this. I don't, I don't like to admit the reality of it. This is what I deserve. This is what we deserve. Solomon has a very real outlook, very honest take on what a life apart from God under his curse brings. But he talks about 
this life under the sun, reminding us that there is something above it. See, God also makes things right in Christ. This is the hope that God offers, not because of who we are, but because of who He is. He offers us not what we not what we deserve. But what we will never deserve and could never. Romans 3, 21 through 26, but now the righteousness of God, this righteousness that we look for, this rightness, this standard of God's image being portrayed, this righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law through, uh, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This righteousness is bestowed on us just simply because we believe in Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek, man or woman, uh, uh, rich or poor, any other division that we can come up with, white or black. It doesn't matter what division you try to figure out. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We do not walk in His image. We do not carry His image in us the way we should. We do not Live like He lives. We have fallen short of His glory and are justified, made righteous. We are justified by His grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction, a payment, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. You see, God has never ceased being righteousness. He will make all things right in death, or He will make all things right in Christ, but He will, not be, he will never cease to be righteous. He does this that we can see His righteousness, so that we can see the standards, so that we can see justice, so that we can see the things that we can't find in this world, this place where we look for justice and there is wickedness. We look for righteousness and there is wickedness, and here we have God and we say, this is righteousness. He never ceases. He never wavers. So he puts Jesus Christ as a propitiation forward so that he remains righteous. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. That he might be just. That he remains righteous. That he might be just. Because the punishment for sin is death. And Jesus Christ died in our place and for our Sin, so God remains just, and death is still the payment for our sin. But in the death of Christ, he says, now you are righteous. You are not what you act. You are not what your nature was. You are not the, 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 the fallen, sinful sinner anymore. You are righteous. But I don't feel righteous. But in Christ... You are. Your sin has been separated as far from you as the east is from the west. You cannot. You're not even in the same zip code. Not on the same hemisphere. If you ever try to get to the west from the east, you'll never get there. You'll always only ever be going one direction. It's infinite. 
He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God imputes his own righteousness to sinners. Let me just share another verse with you. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. He didn't ever sin. He lived a perfect life. He, he never committed any kind of transgression against God. He never offended the image of God that he bore. He was completely sinless. For our sake, He made Him to be no sin. God made Jesus to be sin, even though He had never sinned. So, why did He do that? So that we might become the righteousness of God. You know why Paul says that there shouldn't be any kind of hint of unrighteousness among us? Because that's not keeping in step with what the gospel has proclaimed about us. It doesn't fit anymore. It doesn't have a place anymore. We are righteous. So he says, live like it. God, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God frees sinners from oppression to live under his righteous rule. Colossians 1:13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's where we lived. It's the, the, the suffering and the oppression we all feel. Even those who have power are under the oppression and rule of an enemy. They are being crushed. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Don't, don't miss this, 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 this nuance here. Don't miss this reality. He doesn't move us out into this place where we now get to be creators. He moves us to a place where we are free to submit to His rule. He still maintains authority. He still is King of kings and Lord of lords. He still is creator and we still are creatures, but we are free now to walk in submission to Him. And, and let me just add another point here because I, I, didn't, I, I noticed this this morning. I was like, man, we didn't talk about the comfort piece because He pleads. He, he sees this oppression. He sees this oppression. He's like, there's no comfort for them. People using power, ruling in evil ways, and, and God doesn't do that. But not only does He not do that, He comforts us as we face Oppression. Listen as the Second Corinthians three or Second Corinthians one three through five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We look around and it is a broken hurting world where there is supposed to be justice we can see wickedness where there is supposed to be righteousness we can see wickedness but yet this God who rules in sovereignty with grace and mercy is also a God who gives us all comfort we're not left without it even that he meets us in for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God imputes His own righteousness to sinners. God frees sinners from oppression to live under His righteous rule, enjoying His comfort. God overwhelms a sinner. Uh, God overwhelms a sinner's envy with His generosity. Ephesians chapter 1, one of my favorite chapters in all the books. This is one of my favorite books in all the Bible. 
And in chapter 1, he starts out, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's not one left out. There's already a picture of abundance in that, right? One of my favorite, it just, I, I can't help but think of it, I think because it has food in association with it, but in verse 7, in verse 8, God overwhelms the sinner's envy with his generosity. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now that right there should be enough. But Paul's like, man, i got to qualify that. So he says, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He lavished it. Like he didn't withhold. He didn't just give us sparingly. He lavished it. I always picture a biscuit with big fat drops of gravy just running down the side. There's not, not an ounce of that biscuit that's uncovered, man. He's just so good. And oh, man, just want, I want to eat that. I want to just sit in the glory of the reality that I am covered up, that there's not an ounce of me uncovered, that there's more gravy, there's more grace than I could ever fathom. I'm soggy with it. I'm saturated by it. We all are. He's lavished His grace upon us. What in the world do we have to long for? What is there more? What more can we want? Why are we still envious? Why are we still scraping and clawing and seeking to make a name for ourselves and build some kingdom that's going to crumble? Brothers and sisters, we have received the great grace of our God. He has not held anything back from us. And we received it in Christ. So what? What are, what are we supposed to do now? What, I mean, trust Him! It's how it comes to us. It's not by what we do. It's not by how we earn it. It's not by how we measure up. It's just simply by faith in Christ. Believe Him. Believe Him. Repent of all those things that you believe, all those lies that you've been told. They will fail you. They live in a world that's dying. And in the end, all those injustices and all those places we look for justice and all those things we look for to make things right and to fit the world all oh, just the perfect way we think it's supposed to be fit. It'll never satisfy. It'll never fix our problem. It'll never fulfill our soul. And in the end, when God judges... That's going to meet death. But in Christ, we find life. We find justice. We find righteousness. We find it all, the things that we long for. Freedom from oppression, a, a right rule, a right use of power. Comfort in the midst of our affliction. And more than we'll ever really deserve. Let's pray. Father.
Give us your spirit now. That we might believe. For those that have never trusted you, that they'd begin today those that have believed that we believe more fully. Father, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.